Join us for part three of the exploration of the farther reaches of human consciousness with Chris Beish, the explorer who took 73 high doses of LSD in an attempt to explore the farther reaches of what we are. We discuss the pitfalls in the path, the dark night of the soul that can happen as one loses contact with the divine, the possibility of endless openings to yet further and further reaches of consciousness, the creative intelligence and evolution of our collective human psyche and the profound genius, love, and intent of the universal mind of which we are all a part. Join and enjoy this remarkable man as he explores the further reaches of our possibilities. Welcome to Deep Transformation, Self, Society, Spirit, life-enhancing, paradigm-rattling conversations with cutting-edge thinkers, contemplatives, and activists with Dr. Roger Walsh and John Dupuy. Join us in the evolutionary fast lane as we take a deep dive into transformational practice, peak experience, profound understanding, powerful contribution. And you're talking now about a very interesting topic. You're talking about the traps that can go with this kind mm -hmm. of deep work. And usually we talk about traps on the spiritual path or with psychedelics as some of the, we usually talk about the earlier paths, the traps of being overwhelmed, of fear, of terror, of acting out certain psychodynamics, of ego inflation, taking these experiences to be proof of our unique transpersonal nature and specialness. And yet you're pointing to some of the traps that can occur uh, significantly further along. It sounds like you're talking about one way of framing what you just said, this deep sadness or loss as would, of course, be, and you do this in your book, I think, uh, in terms of the dark night of the soul of St. John of the Cross, the challenge that comes when we taste something so transcendent, so divine, so inspiring, and then lose that contact in a way. And you're talking about some of the traps that can come with the sheer amount of energy coursing through one's body and the possibility of transmission as a result and of being seduced by those capacities. Mm. So this is another kind of gift you're giving us, the beginnings of a map of the more advanced traps yeah. that can come. Yeah. The traps that happen when everything goes right. Uh. <laughs> not, from, not from deficiency, but when everything goes right, you can have too much of a good thing, I found. I didn't know that at the beginning. But you can well, is, is it too much or is it our attitude towards it? I think you can have too much of a good thing in the sense that uh. I think in every one lifetime, most of us, we can only integrate so much and productively. And I think it's possible to bite off more than we can really thoroughly chew. And sometimes I think I bit off more than was wise for me to chew. And But you're absolutely right. Uh, there are so many pitfalls on this path. Ego inflation, thinking you're special because you've had a special experience. And it's so important to stay grounded, really grounded, 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 so that all of these things wash through you. My wife was very good at helping me remember always, always, what's important is not what happens on the day of your session. 
What's important is what you can do the day after your session. Mm. It is how you live your life in the world, carrying the insights that you've had as best as you can into your fallible life and recommitting yourself to purifying your life of all of its messy garbage and being a clean and compassionate and proper life. That continues just because you've become one with God. What happens is I don't actually these days, I don't know why anyone would want to become one with God, because once you do that, it triggers enormous purification processes that don't stop. I mean, it's just, it goes on and on, you you know, it just deepens. Yeah, there are lots of ways for this path to go wrong. And yet there was something which in the, in the way you approach this, that allowed you, there were ways you got caught, but they weren't the gross ways. They weren't, you didn't harm others, but there were subtle ways in which you got caught, such as the dark night of the soul, but you always, you worked your way out of it. What do you attribute that to? I attribute that to good company, the people I was with, my former wife, Carol, we were married for 24 years. She is the mother of all my children. She was my sitter for all my sessions. She never did a session herself. She is a very serious Vajrayana practitioner. She has since gone on to complete her three-year retreat. She's a Lama, acknowledged as such, and she was a great help keeping me grounded during all these years when I was, you know, going in and out of the universe, my children kept me grounded, teaching kept me grounded, but studying the great masters, because the more I studied the great masters, the more it, it, it showed me my own imperfections. It all, it showed me what I was not by looking at their greatness. And so I never, I could never take myself They kept me honest with Mm. myself as I went. Mm. My students kept me honest because, you know, I I had to earn a living teaching at an open enrollment university. And I'm walking into a classroom filled with people, many of them who don't want to be there. And I have to kind of trick them, persuade them to be interested in some of the things that we're going to be studying here. Now, it's hard work. I was not teaching graduate students. I was teaching an open enrollment university for people who are going to college for the first time. So it was just good, hard, honest work that kind of kept me focused and gave my body and my mind time to absorb the enormity of what came forward. But eventually, the second thing I deal with in that chapter of coming off the mountain is what I call the sickness of silence. And that's the isolation of doing psychedelics in a psychedelic phobic society where psychedelics are illegal. Even if you can share them in small groups, you cannot share them professionally. I'm a teacher. I'm a a public person. I could not share my experiences psychedelically. I literally had to retire from my work as a philosopher of religion before I could begin my deepest work as a philosopher of religion. (laughs) That's the irony of it. In fact, I retired a little early precisely to give me enough time to write this book, to do this work. 
And as I began to be honest publicly in the writing of the book, it took me a long time. Before I wrote the book, it literally took me about three years just to get myself into the psychological position where I was willing to let people this deep into this part of my life. And the only way I was able to do that was to truly let go and remind myself over and over again, these experiences were not given to me for me. They were never part of my, they were never private. They were never given to me for me. They were always given to me to share, to help the human community as a whole. So by taking myself out of the picture and just sharing visions without owning them in a sense or appropriating them, they were never private visions. That made it easier for me to release them and let them have their impact without owning that impact myself. Uh, and there were so many experiences, which brings up uh, another topic, and that is, if we look across the great religious traditions, and of course other traditions as well, which haven't had such a major impact, we almost always find a worldview, an understanding that there is some final experience towards which we are working. And we get that final experience and then it's, you know, all bliss and roses. It wasn't exactly what you found. And it seems like there was an endless opening for always for the possibilities that you open to. And to my limited knowledge, there aren't a lot of examples of that. I think the best in, in our own time, maybe of the teacher Hamid or Almas is the pen name he writes under. And his two most recent books, Runaway Realization and The Alchemy of Transformation, he spent decades with profound study and a kind of spiritual genius, opening an enormous number of states. And then he built up this extraordinarily sophisticated psycho-spiritual map of the progression of states and the ways of working with them. And then recently, he stepped off his own map and said, no, there's no, yeah, you can see a progression and there's no final goal. Every opening is merely a can be, can be merely a portal to another opening. And he has a statement in there which probably only a handful of people on the planet could make. He said, Yeah, I've been enlightened many times. And every time everyone, someone says, Oh, that's the final experience, but I always find there's something more. <laughs> <laughs> And that seems your experience. It is, I think. And I think it's particularly the experience when you use, I mean, this is a path of temporary immersion. And the path of temporary, I mean, all of our practices are temporary, but this psychedelic path particularly is a temporary path. And that's a, the temporariness is what makes it tricky. But I, like you, I thought, I was doing this path in order to get to an end state, that there would be a goal. I'd, I'd know when I would reach it. It would solve all my issues or because people describe as becoming one with God or becoming dissolving into the metacosmic void. And what I found was that actually I became one with God or one with the mind of the universe many times. And there, there are many gradations, there are many levels of oneness with God. And there are even levels of the primal void. There's levels of void. 
in the universe. Eventually, there were many levels of homecoming and peace and reunion and just relaxing into the, the bliss of return. And when the diamond luminosity opened at 15 years into the work, when the diamond luminosity opened and I entered this hyper, hyper clear, just unbelievably clear level of awareness. And in the next four years, 26 sessions, I only touched this reality four times. Lots of purification, lots of cleansing, lots of four times. The second time I touched it was the 50th session, and I was as deep into the universe as I would ever go. I was far beyond time and space. I was dissolved completely into this ecstasy of the pure luminosity. And then my visual field pivoted 90 degrees, and I saw a reality far in the distance filled with a light, an even greater light than the diamond luminosity light. And a ray of light hit me from that reality and it absolutely shattered me and took me 10 minutes to recover from it. And that's when, that's when it sunk in, that it's an infinite progression. There isn't a matter of coming to an ending spot. You come to an ending stop when you simply can take it no longer. You can take the ecstasy no longer. You can take the cycle of death and rebirth no longer. It's an endless progression. It's an endless progression. And that's one of the reasons I would be gentler with myself if I were to do it again. I'd, I recommend others. It's not about reaching an end state. It's about opening up, letting all this wisdom in, letting the beauty in, letting the healing in, going through the purification process and becoming a little more alive, a little more conscious and in the dance of life, in the dance of the universe. But it's not about reaching any end state. You had that recognition. There was always more and the always more required something of you. It required a, another level of purification for each taste of that something more. And you just alluded to what you called the diamond illumination, which in some ways, I mean, I hesitate to put any differential value on these things, but in some ways felt like one of the most impactful of all experiences that you had and something which left you, as I recall, you said in the book, that for this, you would gladly die. And you relate the, you, what you called the diamond illumination to the experiences described as the culmination point in, in some other traditions. I'd just be lovely to have you expand on, on, give us a feel for this realization to whatever extent you can, of course, and for how it relates to the, the goals of other traditions. Well, as I understand it, the reality that I was taken into in those four sessions is a reality that's outside of the bardo, it is extra samsaric reality. It's outside of time-space and what I call the echoes of time-space, Bardo reality. What happened in the first two times I went into this condition, 
I was taken deeper and deeper into it. I had the encounter with what I call the absolute light, which showed me that it's an infinite progression. Then the next two times I went into it, this diamond luminosity began to crunch itself deeper and deeper into my physical being. I wasn't going out, it was coming in. So it literally was crunching itself into my psyche, into my body. It felt like it was changing me at a cellular level. And eventually, at the very end of my journey, it changed my perception. It changed how I see things, literally, physically, how I can see things, not permanently. It gave me a temporary experience that I call diamond vision. I was seeing a hundred, a thousand times more sharply, more clearly than I would have ever seen before. And at that point, I realized that I was seeing through the eyes of the future human. I was seeing in a way that all humanity will one day see that all of our senses, sight, touch, taste, all of our senses are being elevated and animated to higher and higher levels, the more consciousness we can internalize in our body. So this crunching into me is actually an acceleration of something which is taking place more slowly for all of us in our reincarnation, evolutionary reincarnation process. And that's the message I got at the end of my sessions was that one of the reasons I had to stop my sessions was the whole movement now was no longer going out and into the whole movement was that which is out coming into me, coming in deeper, deeper into me. And I literally had to stop my sessions in order to let this process reach its end stage, reach its, its natural conclusion. When I reflect on the diamond luminosity condition, and I draw parallels to the spiritual traditions that I'm familiar with, the ones that stand out, of course, all the spiritual traditions speak about light. All of the reincarnational traditions speak about extra samsaric reality. The clearest description I've come across are in the Buddhist traditions whose text I know the best and their description of uh, Dharmakaya, the clear light of absolute reality, the clear light, which is the that which is the seed reality out of which all existence emerges, that which is the love out of which all emotion, all love emerges, that which is the pure distilled power out of which all energy of creation emerges in its absolute transcendent, hyper clear, clear form containing everything within it and nucleus and yet something which is beyond creation itself. Truly I understand why touching that reality even once undoes centuries of living in the shadows of karma. Karmic vision is always shadowed and it's always approximate, it's always conditioned. But to touch something which is so profoundly unconditioned, and then slowly, the task I think is to slowly shape one's life so that one can live the conditioned existence in abiding communion 
with that which is unconditioned, to live the light in one's physical manifestation, something I have just getting started. I have so much to learn in that process. I'll never be able to, <laughs> I'll never be able to conclude this during this one lifetime. But my belief is what the universe seems to have promised me is that when I die, I will return to that condition, that there is nothing I need to do between now and when I die to return to that condition. And if I meet any obstacles along the way, if anything arises which would prevent me from returning to that essential truth, I have learned how to dissolve those obstacles by taking any obstacles into me until eventually they dissolve of their own, of their own weight. Mm -hmm. uh, what a wonderful vision and, and something which clearly, e even as you recount it now, I could see you going into your own experience and being deeply, deeply touched by it even now, 20, 30 years later. So it's an exquisite example of the way in which these experiences touched and incarnated in and as you and still have their resonance and impact and transmission. I felt palpably touched by the qualities that you're expressing in your description, given out of your direct experience, which felt partly out of your direct experience in this moment, mm -hmm. and a very exquisite transmission. And you also spoke once more of the idea that these awakenings, the recognitions of these remarkable realities are not the end point. That's a stage, but beyond that is the integration, the allowing it to incarnate in and through us. And you pointed to what you called the diamond vision, and you mentioned that the diamond illumination was most resonant for you with the Tibetan Buddhist tradition. And interestingly, the Tibetan Buddhist tradition speaks further of of a stage beyond that which it feels like you're illuminating, of pure perception, a recognition in which one's perception is so transformed by this realization that one sees this world not as some merely mundane material reality, but as an expression of that diamond illumination. One sees sacred beings, one sees it as what's called a pure land, optimized for awakening and expressive of awakening. Mm -hmm. uh, so they call it the pure perception. I'm not telling you anything you don't know, of course, but yeah. it might be, not, might be interesting for our listeners to know that your description, not only of the awakening to the diamond illumination, but its very effects on you, something that is recognized and highly valued in certain traditions. Yeah. Truly, there is nothing unique in any of my journey. I'm simply rediscovering things which many, many people in many traditions have already discovered that the technology may be a little bit different, but the core understanding of existence, the core truths, the core insights have been with us for a long, long time, embodied by great beings, passed along generation by generation by great beings. 
there's really nothing, uh, there's nothing unique in my work. And you open to experiences that others have opened to, and you had your own unique constellation, and you bring to it something which is unique, your own gifts as a philosopher and theologian. So once again, it's the (laughs) yes and. (laughs) I'll tell you something that the mother told me at the end, and when I was really not sure what to do with all of this. And what the mother, which for me, my naming of the absolute tends to run in the feminine direction. I see myself as a servant of the great mother, and I see all physical existence as the embodiment of the great mother and the transcendent divine as more male and the embodied divine is more female. But what the mother said was, simply let them see me as you have seen me. That's all. Mm. Just let me let them see me as you have seen me. They'll know what to do with it. It will serve them in ways that you cannot anticipate. Just let them see me. And she was very clear. She said, you know, you didn't give yourself these visions. You didn't decide what visions you were given on any particular day. You did, had no control over when you were broken and when you were nourished. We did that. None of this is of your doing. It was all our doing, and you have no right to hold on to any of it. Mm. And I think this feeling is a feeling that spiritual beings or people who have given themselves over to intimacy with the universe have always felt that their practice is not their own, and the fruition of their practice is not their own, and they have no right to hold on to their fruition of their practice, because it's in the very nature of the awareness that the divine serves all, and the divine is all. And in the end, it's the mother speaking to her children. It's the mother's love for all of her children. And it's the mother's desire to wake up all of her children, which is the driving force of it all. And I was struck by your description then, which echoed a theme in the book. When you were portraying the communications you received from very profound realms of consciousness and being, that you did it in the plural, first-person plural, we have given you these gifts. And I think it's reminded me very much, as you pointed out, the Quran, where Allah speaks as we. Yeah, Yeah, I don't think it's a plural like a polytheism. It's a plural like just vast. I mean, just unable to wrap our minds around it. So enormous that it swallows our capacity to describe or to concretize. And somehow we speaks to that more effectively than I. I think sometimes no matter how profound this are, if we were to take the greatest spiritual geniuses of our generation and truly just the great, great masters of our generation, and if we could go forward 500,000 years or however many thousand years we would imagine, the great masters of that generation will be able to see more 
will have deeper experiences still because there is a certain sense in which the experience of any individual is kept within, in certain sense, the capacity of the herd. They push the edge, but they're limited by the capacity of the collective psyche. But as the collective psyche evolves, it extends the limit of the individual spiritual genius. So it's an ongoing, ever unfolding, ever progressive deepening of this rapport between the creative intelligence and we who are the result of that creative intelligence. Yes. And I'm going to ask a question, which is going to be, of course, impossible. We need another few sessions, but, but it has to be asked. That is, after all these experiences, these openings, these gifts and graces, and ones which had very dramatic impacts on your understanding of yourself, why you were doing this, the nature of reality, which exploded your understanding in not once but many times. And that was one of the things I found in the book and in our dialogue now, recognizing my own limiting presuppositions, such as, yeah, you, you know, these chemicals are good for psychotherapy and healing <laughs> on an individual level. But no, you were forced to the recognition, kicking and screaming all the way, <laughs> I would say, to a larger recognition that this was potentially about a healing of collective consciousness and more and always more. So, Obviously, in a reality in which there's always more, there can be no definitive map. But how would you describe, to the extent you can, your understanding of the nature of reality? How would you characterize or point us towards your worldview at this time? I'll do my best to answer your question and to not weep. As I do so. You go ahead and weep if you need to. It's okay. I see the universe as a magnificent, as pure genius, as saturated with genius and saturated with, with the genius's ambition, the creative impulse. I see the birth of stars and the birth of galaxies and the birth of planets and the birth of species and the birth of an intelligent, a self-aware species within some of the planets and a reincarnating species within this planet, all as acts of profound genius, of just unspeakable genius and, and love because it is the sharing of existence. It is the, the gestating of the conditions that make infinite progression possible. I see death and rebirth. I see reincarnation. I see the bardo. I, I see this vision that when we die, we don't simply wink into this. We go into a very specific gradated series of levels of existence that reflect our limits and our capacities. I used to think of the bardo as kind of the enemy or the opposition. It was a cloud getting in the way, but now I'm beginning, I see it as a compassionate blanket. It keeps us safe as we enter into deeper and deeper communion with the true power. I will call it the divine. I, I don't like to call it the divine, though I use this language sometimes, but 
because our concepts of the divine and of God are so childlike, are so childish compared to the reality itself. But to touch that power until we are fully formed and capable of withstanding the intensity of that reunion, it would shatter us. It would just absolutely shatter us. We have to be very, very strong and very congealed as an individual before we can touch that reality and stay conscious and coherent within the real that reality. And that's just the level of reality outside the bardo of this particular piece of time and space. So I don't know what lies beyond the Dharmakaya. I don't know what lies in the absolute dimension, but everywhere that I have journeyed and everywhere I have seen, there is genius arising. There is purposeful intent, not an easy to recognize purposeful intent. Sometimes a very, very hard, complex, subtle, purposeful intent, but it's there behind everything. It's there. It's always there. It's always pressing for more and uplifting us all. And in saying what I've been saying, you know, I'm just echoing the teachings of the great spiritual lineages of the great teachings. There's nothing original in what I'm saying. I'm simply echoing, not what I've been taught, but I'm echoing teachings that I have seen elsewhere, that it's all alive. It's all and the depth of love that holds existence is proportionate to the depth of the genius that has orchestrated existence. That was one of the hard things for me to take in, that the genius I could see, but the love that's proportionate to that genius I've become much more bhakti in this process than I had ever thought that I would be. It's just, it's just. And patient, patient. Wake up now, wake up in a hundred thousand years, wake up in a million years. It doesn't really make that much difference to the creator because it doesn't think in the short term. She thinks in the long term. She thinks in the long term, and she doesn't think about individuals. She thinks about all of us. She thinks about the entire planet, the entire galaxy, the magnitude of. As far as I've gotten in all of this work, I've just touched the edges, just touched the edges. Thank you so much, Chris. Again, that was a a true transmission of the, not only the magnitude and the genius, but of the heart, words fail, heart chattering, heart boundlessness of love that you saw. And what is inspiring is that, yes, you keep saying in true humility that there's nothing new in what you saw, but the fact that you did see it that you are reporting your own experience, that this is direct phenomenology, not some out of some textbook, but this is what you found in your direct experience. And it echoes the discoveries of the great saints and sages throughout human history. And it also echoes 
the findings of other deep explorers, which Stan Groff put together in his book, The Cosmic Game, where he took the deepest insights of the thousand people he'd worked with and welded them into a synthesis, a cosmology, an ontology, a metaphysics, which was remarkably similar to some of the findings of the great traditions, and I think was most congruent of all with uh, Kashmir Shaivism, the very profound mysticism of India. So, yes, from (laughs) one perspective, we can say, yeah, you just saw what's been reported (laughs) umpteen times, no big deal. (laughs) Why'd you waste your time writing a book? On the other hand, thank you, Chris. This is a new way. The, the fact that we have a, an integrated report of these truly trans-egoic, trans-personal, trans-everything openings from a different modality is very affirming of perennial wisdom and perennial insights. Wow. So Nothing is left out. You, you include the all somehow. And, and I was thinking, it's like, this guy's so tell me about the burning bush and I smell the smoke, you know, so uh, beautiful. And, and holding on to your humility and your, your, your humanity and coming back and being a human being, such a gift, brother. Thank you so much. Indeed. Indeed. There's one more theme I want to bring back or actually just point out that's been underlying so much of what you've, you've said You've talked about being guided, being taken into, being offered, being graced by an intelligence and love far beyond uh, that passes all understanding. And what I take from that is something that resonates deeply from my own much more mundane explorations and from reading great psychologists and therapists and other psychedelic explorers. And that is, we live usually, the vast majority of humankind lives at war with their own, their own minds, deeply distrusting of their own psyches and themselves. And yet the deeper we go, the more we discover what you discovered, that we can trust ourselves, that given when we open as fully as we can, we find that our minds are not these malevolent cesspools of pain and trauma and malevolence. Yes, there are those some of those elements and bits we have to be willing to face, but there's so much more. And that when treated well, <laughs> when treated well, our minds are self-healing, self-actualizing, self-correcting, self-transcending. Yeah. And that's that leads to this profound trust both in ourselves and in the greater reality. Yes, absolutely. You say it very well. Self-correcting, self-healing. We all have knots. We're all born with knots. We bring in garbage from a previous lifetime, lots of previous lifetimes. But when we bring our awareness When we bring those knots into awareness, they open, they untie themselves. When we bring our pain into awareness, it heals itself, it clarifies. And then as those shadows lighter, as lightness, we get clearer and clearer and relax them, then 
the genius of our being shows itself more easily, more strongly. And then the wonderful discovery is that there is no membrane, ultimately, no absolute membrane between our individual existence and the existence of the universe itself that we just drop right through. And so the awareness that bubbles up inside our individual life and the awareness which is bubbling up around life around us in totality and in my neighbors and in each other and in the planet, it's the same life. It's not a separate life. And that's when I think when we begin to really understand existence, then we can relate to the beauty of the universe and own it as a reflection of our beauty. Because if we don't understand reincarnation and, and, and we don't understand how life works, we're always going to be estranged from the magnificence of a beautiful sunrise and sunset or the stars at night. But as we get clearer, everything begins to become simpler, more transparent. And that's just as you say, we're self-healing, self-clarifying, self-arising. Wow. Uh, Chris, you've given us such an incredible gift. And I know that you are very aware that this is not your gift (laughs) and that you're... You are the instrument through which this gift has come. And that's the aspiration with which you entered this very intense, decades-long investigation. And yet, or because of that, this is an extraordinary transmission you're offering. Unique. Yes, re-esperennial discoveries, and yet unique in its own form and time and the capacity for contextualizing within the best of our contemporary knowledge and understanding of the great tradition. So it's a priceless, just a priceless gift. And I think John bowed to you before I bowed to you. We both both bow and well. and you, you'll let the bow go through you. <laughs> Gentlemen, I know enough of each of your work to know who I'm with here. And I bow to you deeply because I know that all three of us have been working these fields for a long time. All three of us have been nurtured by the wisdom and have been contributing to the wisdom. The bow is returned, brothers. Truly, truly is. Uh, thank you. And that's the way it is in, in the tr- spiritual traditions. We bow to each other, recognizing who we really are. Chris, is there anything you'd like to say that by way of completion? First, I'd like to say thank you. I become healed and more whole when I get to speak about these things. Then I get to do what I was designed to do. And there are still not that many places where I get to have the conversation that you pulled for me today, that we had together today. So I want to say thank you. And I'd like to add as a footnote, if there were one gift that I wish I could give people straight out of my experiences here, it would be the gift of letting go of the fear of death, letting go of the fear of death. If you're afraid of death, you have life turned upside down. This is where the hard work is done. 
This is where we do the really hard work. Death is, we have so many stupid ideas about what happens to us when we die. Death is the great liberation. Death is even the partial liberation is a great liberation. Death is joy. Death is return. Death is to return again to the arms of the beloved. To be born is the beginning of the hard cycle. To die is the end of the hard cycle, the beginning of the easy part of the cycle. That's, that's a wonderful flip on our conventional understanding. Yeah. Chris, uh, well, I'm just going to repeat myself. What yeah. a gift, but <laughs> I, want to, I want to close by mentioning again your books. There are several, The Dark Night, Early Dawn, Subtitle Steps to a Deep Ecology of Mind. You wrote about your teaching experience and how teaching can be a transmission in the book, The Living Classroom. And most recently, the book we've been primarily focusing on today is the extraordinary book, LSD and the Mind of the Universe. LSD and the Mind of the Universe, and both John and I, I don't think we can recommend it highly enough. We've both been inspired by it. Chris, it's been a sheer delight to be able to do this dialogue and these explorations with you. Thank you so much on our behalf and also on behalf of all our listeners and all the people who, who you're touching in so many ways. Deep gratitude. Thank, Thank you, you so much. much. Thank you. Today's episode was brought to you by iAwake Technologies. Visit the Deep Transformation website to find out more about iAwake's audio tools designed to wake us up, grow us up as a part of our daily deep transformational practice. Thank you for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the Deep Transformation podcast, and we greatly appreciate your comments, suggestions, and questions. Thank you for all you are and all you do. From John, Roger, and the Deep Transformation team.